0: Good morning. My name is Mike St. Dennis. I'm the associate pastor here at All Souls Fellowship. It's good to be with you this morning. If you're new and visiting with us this morning, we're especially glad that you're here. Uh, Thanks for coming and joining in worship, adding uh, to our fellowship today as we celebrate the good news of Easter. In our sermon this morning, we're going to dive back into a study in the book of Mark in chapter 3. We started this study uh, in the last fall sometime. Uh, and it's our plan to go really slowly through this book of Mark over the next, you know, 2 to 20 years. Uh, taking breaks along the way like we just did for Lent. And, and the point of this is that we want to go slowly to spend time with Jesus as he's presented and offered in this gospel that we might participate in life with him, that we might be moved uh, not only by his teachings, but by his way of being in the world, his way of being with God the Father, with himself, and with others. Uh, And so we're going to, like I said, go slow. We're picking back up now. We're going to carry this study on through like the second or third week of June just to orient you, and then we'll take a break for a a summer series. Uh, But it's not too late to pick back up and join in the study with us. We're only in the third chapter, so you can catch up real easily with us. And today we're going to look at verses 20 through 35. Last week, we celebrated Easter with all the joy and the pageantry. Uh, The room was full. The the room was full of people and joy. Uh, We sang songs. The music was hopping. Or lit, as the kids say these days. Uh, Just the energy was great. People were dressed up. I was wearing this. Uh, It was beautiful. And uh, some of us celebrated afterwards with uh, meals and and parties and things like that, because the season of Easter uh, is a season, it's not just a day, but celebrating the new life and the hope of Easter's empty tomb. Uh, So that kicked off last week with the celebration continues through the end of may and this is the beginning of the the new year for the church and the church calendar as well and so there's different ways that we've been celebrating Uh, just yesterday we had a men's breakfast the chance to fellowship to enjoy one another's company, but also to hear about what God has done in some of our lives over the last year, especially the theme of celebrating, right? Just like you may do at the end of a year, do kind of a look back and see what happened. You know, I think of those retrospectives and the commercials. Google always does a great one, top searches in the year that we do in December at the end of the year. Uh, well, we want to take this time of, of Easter to celebrate, because it's not its not just the day, but it's the reality that we can have new hope, new life, new relationships with God ourselves, and with one another to be restored and healed, to see his kingdom come. And we want to bear and celebrate that fruit with one another. So we did that yesterday by celebrating what God has done in our lives this last year. Uh, and this week, as you heard Catherine mention, the women's retreat this Saturday is that same thing. How do we How do we celebrate? How do we pause? How do we commemorate uh, what God has done with us this last year? And we're going to do it in August as well with the kids. Uh, So there's going to be fifth grade graduation coming up in a few weeks. And at the end of May, we'll have Youth Sunday where we'll celebrate and commission uh, our graduating seniors for whatever God has next for them. And the celebration, the good times are going to continue this morning as we dive into Mark to discuss Beelzebub and the unforgivable sin. You know, I, I'm, I'm quite suspicious uh, about how passages like this always seem to fall on the Sundays that I'm preaching. <laughs> so if you'll just join me in sending Stephen a strongly worded email to try to figure out what's up with that. Uh, and over the last couple of years, I... Whenever there was a difficult passage to preach on, uh, I had this kind of built in temptation where I would spend much of the week thinking to myself, you know, this would be a pretty good time to get COVID. <laughs> uh, but sadly, I don't have that excuse anymore. But, but in looking at this passage, it's, just, it's really like, confusing. And, you know, if this is only your second or third time or first time with us, we're going from the highs of Easter to. Jesus being called a liar and being out of his mind and being called the devil, it's an interesting thing. But this is part of our, our, our practice and our process is really surrendering, even in our sermon planning, surrendering to be formed by the word of God. Not going in with all the preconceived notions of what we expect to get out of it, but following along that we would be with him, that he would do in us what he wants to do. This passage is one, I spent some time as a youth minister and with kids, and there may be some of you in here, teens, especially when you go away to camp, they want to talk about a handful of things, right? How far is too far, the devil, and uh, the unforgivable sin, right? So I was at a conference a few years ago and somebody preached on this passage and it's all the kids wanted to talk about. They did not want to talk about relationships with their siblings, how to, how to honor their parents better. They didn't want to talk about like where their identity was or anything like that. They kind of got caught up in some of these things. And I got to confess, I'm not really all that different. There are some passages and things that you just sit with and wrestle with uh, and they just get a hold of you and you don't really know what to do with them. So hopefully today, rather than wishing that we would all maybe get a little sick and a little COVID, uh, maybe today as we show up, God is going to speak to us in even the weirdness of this passage. And this passage is a little bit weird, and it's supposed to be. So one of the primary things that that I want us to take away from our time together this morning is that the Bible should feel strange. It should confront us. It should disorient us. It should disturb us. We should lay awake at night considering some of these things, like it should have that effect on us. And again, as you'll see in our passage, because that's how great our need is. And that's how great God's grace is to meet us in that need. So you've got the passage printed in your worship guide. But before we dive into it, I just want to pray for our time together. And I want to invite you to pray as well Uh, That God would disturb you in the ways that you need to be disturbed. That he would comfort you in the ways that you need to be comforted. uh, But that we would show up and surrender this time in this passage to him in whatever it is that he wants to do. God, we pause to thank you and praise you that we uh, have this beautiful day to celebrate, to worship, to be together, to get to know one another, to sing of your goodness your love for us, to be challenged and confronted by your word, uh, to be fed and nourished at this table, and to leave here in the remembrance of who you are and who we are by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us not to shy away from the challenging things that you say, from seeing our own hearts and lives in this passage and seeing most clearly, Lord, we pray, who you are, that we might find ourselves in your life and likeness. For your glory and for our joy, we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. And then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins. And every slander and blasphemy they utter But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and bro- my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The book of Mark begins, the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and the Son of God. And so as Mark is opening up his book, and the whole reason for him writing, and he's the first one to write the gospel to communicate who the real Jesus is. It's a question of identity that the whole book is surrounded by. And so, of course, here as he's walking through the different things that Jesus has done in the first few chapters of the book, he's now coming to the place where he's talking about the reaction of people, to the work that Jesus was doing. Just in the beginning, it says that the crowd gathered and his family heard about this as they sat down to eat and they went to take charge of him. They didn't hear that he was sitting down to to eat. They heard that he was driving out demons, that he was healing, that he was proclaiming a message about himself. And we see in this passage two types of responses to the work and the person of Jesus Christ. The responses reveal a dynamic that, again, it's easy to see here in the passage, but we can see the same dynamic at work in our own lives as well. And the dynamics are that of confusion and restraint. Confusion and restraint. The people are confused by the person and work of Jesus. And so very literally, his family seeks to restrain him lay hold of him, to bind him up and take him home. And similarly, the scribes here seek to reject him, to hand him over, to be uh, killed. And we know what it's like to be confused by Jesus, by his person work, to be confused by the life of God breaking into our world, to be confused by even the ordinary moments in our lives. What this passage teaches us is that It's not only normal and easy to be confused, to feel that need to restrain him, but it's also proper and necessary. It's proper and necessary to be wrestled with by God, to have him challenge and confront and disorient and disturb us. We need it. And he is gracious to that task. The confusion. Uh, have you ever been in a pool with somebody who doesn't know how to swim? If you're in the pool, and I was a lifeguard and taught coach swim team and taught swim lessons. and I've been in the pool with people who didn't know how to swim, and they knew that they didn't know how to swim. So their response is, they hold on tight. They hold on tight, they listen to the instructions, and really they let you do most of the work. Have you ever been in a pool with somebody who thinks they know how to swim, but they don't? I remember diving in to help a grown man. He was at least twice my age, but not my size. And I remember being with him and trying to help and and him flailing his arms and there were teeth going everywhere and it was just a mess. See, he was confused, I think, and disoriented by the whole experience of thinking he knew how to swim better than he did. I don't know what was going on at the end of the day. But it, then he tried to restrain my offer to help. And, and so things went around, but of course, you know, I, I saved him against his own will. God is often working with us in that same way. And there are many times that he's working to save us, to transform us, or in the world around us but it doesn't feel like rescue. It's confusing. It's disorienting. It's disturbing. And we as a church want to normalize that experience. I've been talking to folks about their small group experiences at the church over the last six months as we've been talking about how are we celebrating what God is doing. And so for some of our experiences, we show up and we kind of stay at this level of celebrating, oh yeah, we all know who Jesus is. He's not confronting anything right now. Everything's going okay. Uh, If you could just pray for my neighbor's dog and these kinds of things. It's good to pray for neighbor's dogs. Um, But but we kind of stay at the surface level. And then there's other deeper relationships where people are showing up and saying, here's how I'm I'm being disturbed. Here's how God is is kind of tearing my life apart. How he's stripping me away. How he's disorienting me. I I don't know what he's doing, how long he's going to do it, or where we're going to end up. And we're used to running away from those situations. We're used to feeling that sense of confusion and thinking something is bad and we need to get somewhere else. And so we run even from the places where rescue and transformation can happen. In our passage, we want to hear Mark's invitation to be disturbed, disoriented, confused, to recognize that temptation to restrain, and to reject. So there's two audiences. First, Jesus' family. And they show up, they hear about what's, what's going on, and they, they say he must be out of his mind. They seek to bind him up. It's, it's as if they're saying to him, Jesus, you're not yourself when you're hungry. Here, have a Snickers. We're saying, Jesus, you're not yourself. You're just tired. You need to come home and rest a little while. And, and this is the same people that, that, that experience this virgin birth that saw him preaching and teaching in the the temple at 12 years old. They've walked alongside and experienced the miraculous power of Jesus, yet he's pushing the buttons. He's challenging them, disorienting them. And so it's easier to say he's out of his mind than to conclude something else. And before we dismiss them, And practice this chronological snobbery, right? Like Mark is writing the first gospel. He's writing about the people who are first experiencing Jesus. And we come in and we say, of course, how did they not know all the things that he was saying? We all know what the unforgivable sin is and that he's not the devil and all this kind of stuff. But we have to recognize that our part in this passage, we're not not Jesus in the passage. We're not going around explaining truth bombs to everybody and just waiting for them to to be wrestled with. We're much more like his family and like the scribes and like those seated around him. Just consider for a minute, uh, how do you define the good life? What vision do you have for flourishing Maturity, security, belonging, and not just for yourself, but think about for those around you—roommates, coworkers, parents, cousins, children. What do you want for their life? What do you want for your own life? I love this question. I can't remember. Uh, I can't remember uh, the where things are found in scripture. The the references. I can't remember song lyrics. I can't remember things that happened last week, but I can remember things people tell me about themselves. And we all have some sort of vision for what the good life is, and we're we're moving towards it. And the Bible teaches that this is part of who God made us to be, right? We're made to reflect his image in some way. But the trouble comes when we try to reflect that image in all the wrong places where he didn't ask us to do. The problem comes when we try to reflect his image in ways and times and places that he didn't ask us to. When we're out there to protect and promote our own glory rather than being a a mirror, an image, a signpost that points back to his. So what's your vision for the good life? What will make you whole or other people whole? You know, for most of us, we kind of have this image that's, that came to us from our, our, our culture or our families of origin. You know, we want to have this much in the bank. We want to move towards retirement. We want to have the kids do these things in their life, participate in this. And we, we just adopted this view of what life is supposed to be like. And so when we think about the good life and the better life, we want all the good things we've already got. And then we just want a little bit more. And if it comes to spirituality, we're like, we want all of this life, but we want to know a little bit more scripture. We want to add a little bit of prayer. We want to have a little bit of community group. We just want to have what we already have, but then a little bit more. And so sometimes when Jesus says things in scripture, it's easier to conclude he's out of his mind than to let him challenge and distort and disorient that vision of the good life. It's easier to think God must be absent or far away, or he didn't mean his promises when he said it, when life starts falling apart. To blame ourselves and our lack of faithfulness or to blame others as the source of the problem. Rather than turn over that vision of the good life rather than let him comfort or disturb and disorient our lives. And this is why as a church, we can't just practice that we agree and get along with everything in the Bible. Because if that's true, we're missing out on passages just like this, where where Jesus is pushing the envelope and trying to go further. He wants more for you than you're settling for. And he's gracious enough to not stop until he does it. And it's not just about you, but it's about all the impact and the way that he's using you in the world around you and for people after you. The life and teachings of Jesus confront and disorient us, and they should. As we celebrate things that God has done this last year, we should be able to tell the stories of the ways he challenged us the things we never thought possible. The lion, the witch, in the wardrobe, C.S. Lewis gives us a picture of Jesus in this way. The good king, the lion king, Aslan. And there's a passage that reads like this. Mr. Beaver is talking to Susan, the young girl who's found herself in Narnia. And Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion. He's the lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. We're practicing the way of Jesus. We're brought into his life. We are with him, and he is good. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is all that, and he's good. But his goodness requires that he not be safe. His goodness requires that he be a danger and a threat to everything in us and outside of us that would seek to kill us and destroy us and keep us from him. And so just like Mary and Jesus' brothers, we should experience times, if we have the real Jesus, we should experience times where we're disoriented, discomforted, where we're in danger but at the same time in the danger, we can know that he's good. The second group that comes along is the scribes. And the scribes are the religious leaders, and particularly they're the, uh, they're the ones who were writing down the law, expanding upon the law, communicating kind of the written law and the understanding, right? So you have the Bible, but then you have to talk about what the Bible means, Just like this, like what is Beelzebul and the unforgiveness. You got to talk about what it means. So their job was to write down in more common language to the people, what was the Bible trying to say? And so they take the laws of the Old Testament and they expand upon it. And then their job was to go and to offer consultation to go investigate and to go figure out what was going on in the world around them. So a group of scribes comes up from Jerusalem because they hear about somebody doing ministry, healing and driving out demons. And this was a common occurrence. But most of the time when those things were happening, it was happening in some, with some other theology attached. It wasn't the Israelites, Jewish history and theology. It wasn't that God. Somebody was healing in some other name for some other sake and purpose. And now Jesus comes to heal and drive out demons, but he's doing so in the name of the God of the Old Testament. And so they come to investigate. And if they find out that he fits with the crowd, they're going to put their stamp of approval on him. They're going to take credit for it. Look at all the great things we're doing in the world. But that's not what they find. They come and see Jesus, not only in the work that he's doing, but how he explains it himself. And he says that I am the one. Who has come? The only healing is through me. The only new life is my life. And so their conclusion is that he must be a liar, Beelzebub, in cahoots with the devil, Satan himself. They demonize him, literally, confused by him because he doesn't fit their paradigm, their preferences. It doesn't fit their vision of the good life or how God would act in the world. And so, of course, he has to be some other power from some other place. He doesn't fit. They're confused. And they seek to restrain him. Satan, when you, you're going to get a little theology lesson on Satan. Satan's primary power is to lie. If you look at all of the references about scripture, Satan, whose name literally translates to the liar or the deceiver, Satan's whole goal and mission is to lie and to distort, to create violence and brokenness and conflict, but by through lies and distortions. The first being in the Garden of Eden when he comes and says, did God really say that? Surely God wouldn't confront and challenge and disorient you in such a way. Surely you can do this on your own. Surely God just doesn't want you to find your own way and to flourish in your own vision. And so when they call him Satan, they're saying Jesus is that liar. He's that distorter. He's that accuser. Surely he would never ask that of people. He would never make those claims. But again, before we dismiss the scribes and their reaction. We have to understand that Mark is saying whether it's Jesus' family thinking he's crazy or the scribes thinking he's a liar and cahoots with the devil. That's exactly what it looks like when God comes near. Because God can't exist without confronting and disturbing and disorienting as a means of Healing the dark places in our hearts, the lies that we've believed about ourselves, about him, and about others. And we see this as Jesus confronts the scribes in his own language. So Jesus' response, they think he's a liar. They think he's a lunatic. But Jesus offers another explanation. First he says, calling them over, how can Satan drive out Satan? That don't make a lick of sense. And then he quotes Abraham Lincoln. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. So he just starts with the base facts and says, how can the kingdom of darkness come into the world when the kingdom of darkness is receding from the world? How can I gain and possess more people if I'm driving the demons out from people? And then he goes on to tell this parable. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. But after tying him up, then he can plunder the strong man's house. No one can come in and be weaker than the strongest thing there without doing something about the other power that exists there, without coming in to address and confront the corrupted vision of life and flourishing without confronting the lies and bringing truth, without bringing God's nearness to bring the light and explain and reveal. And Jesus says, I am that strong man, the stronger one who has come to bind the lies, to bind the darkness and the violence, to heal the brokenness. I have come. Don't you see by the work that I'm doing? And then he goes on to respond and answer to them in their own language. One of the things about this unforgivable sin, if this was saying that there's just some statement that like a magical phrase that you should never utter because if you did that, then it's unforgivable and now you're doomed to hell. If Jesus was saying that, he would probably say it in more places in the Bible. But rather here he's quoting and directing their attention back to the scribes' own theological understanding, their own explanation. Because for them, in their explanation of the law, they had written out a legal precedent saying that immediately upon blasphemy, the Lord would intervene to take his revenge. It wasn't there in Scripture. It was their expansion of what Scripture was teaching. And Jesus puts it back on them to say, check yourself. He pushes back to say, truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins. Every slander and blasphemy, the word slander here is the same Greek word blasphemy that happens a little later. Everyone. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. So what's Jesus getting at here? Yesterday at the men's breakfast, somebody told the story of a confrontation. Something that happened this last year. They were under the weather and having a bad season of life. And they found themselves in a strange place, a strange time, with a stranger coming towards them. They started to recognize that there was a sharp object in their hand. And the closer the person got, the more bewildering the experience, the more confusing and disorienting, even up until the point where the knife started to pierce their skin. This happened in the operating room, not out in the parking lot, as the surgeon was dealing with the cancer that was in their body. But if you're convinced, like a conspiracy theorist, that Jesus is a liar or a lunatic, when he draws near to help you, you should be afraid and you should run away. When he confronts and disturbs and disorients you, you should dismiss it if he's a liar and a lunatic. C.S. Lewis says it this way, if I can find where that quote is in all these papers. Nope, I can't. There it is. Jesus claimed to be God. His claim is either true or false. If it's true, then ipso facto he is God. But if the claim is false, then either he said it knowing it was false, in which case he's a liar, or he said it not knowing it was false, in which case he's mad. Therefore, we're only left with three logical options. He is either God or a liar or a lunatic. And I love where he says it just previous to that. A a lunatic on the level with a man who thinks he's a poached egg. I thought that was funny. If somebody comes at you with a knife and they're not in scrubs, and you're not at the hospital, like maybe if you need an emergency, tracheotomy or something like that. But probably other than that, you shouldn't let them near to touch you. But even in those situations when the surgeon draws near, it is discomfortable. It is disorienting. And in, earlier in uh, Luke, Jesus, in describing, or Jesus speaks through Simon to speak to the, to the mother Mary after Jesus is presented on the table. And Simon says to her, a sword will come and will pierce your own heart. Your own vision for life. Your own vision and dreams for the life of your child. For this gift that God has given to you. Something will come and disorient and disturb you and prick you and hurt. So that the life of God may come. There are experiences in this world that hurt like heaven, but feel like hell. And you know what it's like to be disoriented and disturbed, to be uncomfortable, to have your visions dashed against the rocks for yourself and for others, to have those jarring experiences. This passage doesn't just come out of nowhere, but this is our regular and ordinary experiences in life. Which is why the proclamation here isn't just to believe in Jesus that he would work on your heart and forgive every sin and bring transformation at one time that you would come into faith in the church. But all the time, to all the time surrender and give your life over, even in the confusing and disorienting times, to let him pierce and prick and make whole your life. The last piece here that we need to see is that Jesus doesn't just say all these disturbing and discomforting things and then walk away, but he has promises for us. An invitation to trust and be formed with him so that we would remain with him even in the confusion. First, the promise that he is the strong man. The promise that he will bind the evil one He will make uh, untrue every bad thing. He will speak the truth and bring the light to every dark place. But again, it's disorienting for his disciples, who over and over again expect a certain vision of what the good life and being with Jesus was going to look like. But then on that good Friday, they all disappear. They run away to hide because they didn't anticipate this level of disruption. Because the strong man lets himself become weak. The one who binds and deals with sin and lies gives himself over to the lies and the sin of others. And he does this so that he might set us free. That his promise would be true. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every blasphemy unless they reject the one by the work of the spirit who's come to heal them unless they try to do it in their own strength according to their own vision and do it in any way apart from me but with me because i have been bound and set free he can make you free as well he concludes by saying this who are my mother and my brothers He looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. The way of Jesus is peculiar and strange. When we have the real Jesus and he does his work to pierce our hearts and transform us, it's going to look strange and weird to others. That kind of freedom and transformation isn't going to fit in with a world marked by lies and brokenness and scarcity. But Jesus says, though the world would hate you, take heart. I've overcome the world. I am who I say I am. I will do what I say I will do. Be with me and be transformed. The last piece here, whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. I, uh, by virtue of my position, have a lot of people send me emails or have conversations where they say, I don't know what God's will is for my life. And this thing or that thing, would you sit and wait with me and discern? And, and I've had to learn to do that instead of just giving the answer of what I think their will this should be. A bad idea. Come alongside and sit and wait and give witness to that. But one of the things that we have to do in discerning God's will, start with the things that you do know, not the things that you don't. Start with the things that you do know, not the things that you don't. And in the New Testament, there's all kinds of verses about God's will. The will of the Father is for you to believe in the one he sent. The Father's will is that all who the Father has given to him would come to him and that not one would be lost. The Father's will is that you would walk into the works that he has prepared for you to do ahead of time in his strength and glory, in his leading. The will of the Father is not a mystery. It's for him to bring the hope and the healing of Easter into your life, to fix and change you as a means of getting to fixing and changing the things that are wrong in the world around us. But it's going to disorient us. It's going to be uncomfortable. But His power is made perfect in that weakness. His truth and life is made new even in that death. We can trust in the one who has called us our brother, His sister. The strong one who became weak for us. Let that be your driving glory. Let that be your source of joy. Amen. We come to